Every time that I was working on it, I had to ask myself, well, why are you working on a podcast or working on this blog when your daughter's about to have heart surgery or you're about to have radioactive iodine put into your system? And it forced me to really ask the question of what's the best use of my time? And we don't often ask that question of ourselves. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a fantastic guest today. Joe Sanek is a TEDx speaker, podcaster, and private practice owner. He helps healthcare professionals to start, grow, and scale their practices by increasing income, influence, and impact on the world. Joe is the founder of Slow Down School, a conference for high-achieving therapists to slow down, skip stones on the beach, and work on their businesses. He has been featured in Forbes, Reader's Digest, and numerous podcasts. His podcast, The Practice of the Practice Podcast, has been downloaded over a million times. Joe, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dr. Richard. So Joe, there's so many things that we could talk about, but I'm always very interested in why people do what they do. So you are a counselor and you've helped a lot of people. Talk to us about what inspired you to want to get into that work in the first place. You know, uh, it started at a very early age. In second grade, I wrote a report about how I wanted to be a psychologist. And it started with that my father, he's a doctoral level psychologist, and he was in the schools, and he was always fully present with the family. And so I saw a lot of freedom there. And as I grew and kind of started to explore the field of psychology, I realized school psychology was absolutely what I didn't want to do. For me, the idea of doing wilderness therapy and outdoor education therapy really was interesting and compelling. So I started a program where we took at-risk kids out sailing uh, right after grad school, a couple years after, and did therapy right on the sailboat and ran that for six years. And from there, my clinical journey just kind of continued. Uh, as I had a family, being out on a sailboat uh, was more and more difficult. As I know, you're a family man also. Started to go down uh, a different path and so went into doing counseling at a community college while also having a side gig private practice that at the time was just to kind of pay off student loan debt and to help a few extra people. I love that. And I want to take a step back. So for those that are not familiar with the term wilderness therapy, talk us through what that is. Yeah. So the idea is that nature can be as much of a healer or a partner in healing uh, for people. And so the idea is that you take these kids in the, in the situation I was working with, it was mostly kids that were in foster care or they were on probation. We took them out on this gigantic old wooden sailboat, that the only replica of which the Kennedys owned. And so picture a kind of 1700s style boat and you'd be picturing it correctly. And that the metaphors are just abound that you can't, you can't often experience these things in a therapy session. So for example, we've got Six kids out on a sailboat, much of their life has been out of their control because of their parents' choices, because of the situation they're in, the courts. They may have been abused in a variety of ways. 
And they're put on this sailboat and we, we tell them, here's how you sail it. Now sail. And if they're not listening, there's some very natural consequences. They might get you know hit by the boom. They might fall overboard. I mean, all sorts of things that we would avoid by talking about safety well before we put them on the boat. But they then harness the power of the wind and they sail for five hours and they have to work as a team. And they're forced into these life situations by being on a sailboat that wouldn't happen typically. And so that happens in situations like sailing. Uh, there's therapeutic sailing. There's therapeutic programs where it's wilderness therapy, where they'll be hiking and working as a team outdoors. Um, but the overall philosophy is that nature can be as much a partner in therapy as almost anything else. I love that. And, I, and I'm envisioning this 1700-style pirate ship that you're, that yeah. you're on. Uh, so talk to us. Uh, the, these kids that you had on, were these kids that... And are the kind of kids that are getting expelled from school for behavior problems or violence? Is, is this the sort of kid that you had on? I know you mentioned a lot were foster care type kids. Yeah, yeah. We had kids that were on probation and in the foster care system. Uh, a lot of them had had a, a really rough life. And so this boat was worth a lot of money. And so right away when I you know, helped launch the program, we had to talk safety first. So the entire first half of the first day is on land. And we did a lot of experiential team building activities. So ones that built upon each other until by the end of that first morning, they created a contract where they decided, you know, what does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to be responsible? What does it mean to be a leader? And they created their own agreement. And so these kids that you know, many had stolen cars, uh, they had robbed people at knife point, they had um, been put in jail more than any kid should be in jail. By the end of it, they're sailing the sailboat in front of their probation officer you know, and bringing it into the harbor in front of their foster mom with this sense of control of this four-ton boat uh, that they didn't have before. And uh, we saw that 95% of our kids stayed off of probation for the, the next six to 12 months. And it was incredible. We hadn't saw that sort of results with a program before that. And is, does this program still exist? Because that's amazing data. You know, with any nonprofit, there's people that are visionaries and there's also people that, that don't necessarily have the infrastructure skills. And, you know, you try to hand a program off to let the next generation of leaders lead. And um, it's shifted. Um, I would say it doesn't have the same results as it had for the six years that I was there, but um, it's still it's still around and they're still taking kids sailing. That's awesome. And so then as your journey moved forward, you said you then next moved into community college. And, and I found something you said so interesting that while you're, you're providing counseling at a community college, you took a, a private practice essentially just to pay off some, some extra debt. At what point did the private practice idea become the potential in your mind to be something so much more? Yeah, you know, there was a third leg to my career that I'll add in there because that was part of the equation as well to answer your question. And that's the in 2012, I started blogging about what I was learning about business and private practice with a website called Practice of the Practice. And there wasn't really anyone that was doing it on the level that I did it at that time. And I started podcasting. It was the first podcast to really focus on the marketing side of a private practice. And it was really just a forum for me to say, here's what I'm learning. We didn't learn this stuff in grad school yet. We're told go start a practice, but we have no business background. So I'd read a book and I'd do a podcast on it or I'd interview interesting people. So in 2013, uh, I started to grow that podcast and grow the, the counseling practice as well. And I remember in 2014, uh, I was walking down the steps into my basement office at the college 
And I had just left my, my counseling practice that at that time had it and still does has a corner view office of the water of the bay here. So I go from this corner office view of the water to this basement office at the community college. And I just realized like, what am I doing here? You know, I have so much autonomy. Things have really grown with practice of the practice and with my counseling practice. And I realized that that year I made more working 10 hours a week than I made in my full-time job. And so my wife and I really started to plan out what would that look like to leave that job, which was completely different from anything I thought. The community college had state pension, top counseling job in the area. It was a big leap. You know, what you say is, a st- what you're sharing is a story that I've heard a lot of times is that it was an almost an accidental thing. You you saw that there was an area of need, you know, and you created the practice of the practice. But all of a sudden, you're seeing that that had the potential to be larger than what you were doing working in the basement and getting your pension at a community college. So when you decided to make that jump, was that a burn the sales kind of thing or did you transition out slowly? No, it, it took so long that my wife finally said to me, either leave or stop talking about it. Because <laughs> I am so risk averse. My wife was and still is a stay-at-home mom. She does so much work for our two daughters. And both of our daughters had had heart issues. And so I knew medically, you know, the, the insurance, the security, that was a huge decision to make when I was the only one bringing in the finances. And so I ran number after number on how many clients I would need to have at what rate, uh, to be able to equal what was happening based on how many hours. And so it really took probably a year for me to really decide and say, okay, I, I'm willing to leave. But you know, it was it was mostly my wife saying, you know, if things get bad, I can go back to work. I'm here for you. And it was her with that, you can do this. And another friend of mine that said, you know, we would walk every Monday just to you know catch up each Monday. And he said to me, there are people way dumber than you that have been successful in business. <laughs> and you know, when he said that, I thought, you know what, between the two of them, these are two people I respect. So then uh, when our youngest was born, uh, I took the full Family Medical Leave Act. And so with that, I was able to go part-time and be guaranteed to keep my job, kind of test it out and did that for six months and saw that every month was the best month we had had ever. And then the month after that was even better than that previous month. And at the end of that, I went to my boss uh, at the college and just told her, you know, here's where I'm at. You know, if you want to keep me, if I can have my full-time salary for half the time, I'll stay. But other than that, I, I really can't leave. And she just laughed. She knew, she knew where I was headed. She was a great supervisor and we still, you know, hang out and communicate. Um, but, but we had to run the numbers. Uh, we had to feel safe and secure when we left. Uh, you know, I didn't want to take down the family through this decision for more freedom with my work. No, I, I love the way that that, that transpired. And because you, know, you mentioned it, I want to ask, talk to me a little bit or talk to us a little bit about, you know, so your daughter had some medical conditions. Everything okay there? Yeah, everything's okay. But I think that the lasting ramifications of 2012 really have helped our family in a lot of ways. So our daughter, uh, right before her first birthday, had full open heart surgery. About two weeks after we got the all clear with her, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Uh, so what we thought was the end of our medical journey was just the beginning of another chapter. And then after that, in 2012, my wife had a miscarriage and one of our friends had breast cancer. Uh. And you know, during that time, that's the year that I launched my blog and podcast. And so every time that I was working on it, I had to ask myself, well, why are you working on a podcast or working on this blog when your daughter's about to have heart surgery or you're about to have radioactive iodine put into your system. And it forced me to really ask the question of what's the best use of my time. 
And we don't often ask that question of ourselves, but whether it's, you know, me as a therapist, is being a therapist the number one use of my time or are there larger things that I could do? And then, you know, I can bring in group practitioners to, to run the group and to keep things going from a mental health perspective. Or, you know, even with my podcast, I love doing the art for the podcast, but about a year ago, I handed that off to someone else so that I can do the things only I can do. No, it makes a lot of sense that you delegate, you delegate those things that aren't the best usage of your time, as you said. And I want to jump a little bit forward because a lot of what you do is helping people who are coaches, psychologists, LPC, social workers, counselors build their practices. But a lot of the techniques and the things that you have developed an expertise in can really apply to anybody who's thinking about starting a small business. So let's jump to a point where somebody somebody is where you were. They're, they're ready to start it. Maybe they're not burning the sales and going in full in. Maybe they're doing it part-time like you did. But take us through the, the basic things that somebody should be thinking about when they're getting ready to start that small business and make that happen. Yeah. And, and I think that the principles that, that I talk about are applicable to almost any field. I think first doing a good evaluation of what's out there. When I was looking at whether I wanted to start a YouTube channel or a podcast or a blog, uh, I realized that for search engine optimization, starting with the blog was really important. And so what I would do is I would just go into LinkedIn groups when people had questions. I would then go write a blog post about that question. And then according to the group rules, would go in there and, there and say, hey, I have this blog post I just wrote about your question. Here it is. And so I started to drive traffic to my website. So first, you got to get some sort of audience. Um, then I looked at, well, are there any podcasts that are out there? And the only podcast that had anything really to do with training counselors was the American Counseling Association podcast. And it was dormant for six months before I launched mine. So right away, I was the number one podcast for counselors in private practice. And, and so looking at, well, what's out there and where are their gaps? Uh, where are people saying, man, I wish there was something out there? And, and so if you're if you get a little bit of an audience, whether that's through a blog or whether that's through putting on, you can put on local seminars, depending on what kind of business you want to do, doing something online. So you can do Facebook Lives, you can do online webinars. There's so many ways to gain an audience. Then you can drill into the specialty more and then find the products on the other side. So often people say, oh, I have this million dollar idea, but I have nobody to sell it to. You really have to start with building an audience and building the content because that helps you have some expertise it really also helps you get into your ideal client's head. Because if your ideal client, uh, if they want something that's super simple and you've created this advanced technique or this advanced product, they're not going to buy it. So you really want to be able to get into their heads. So that's why you got to start with audience building and content first. I love that. And you, you tied in SEO to audience building, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, we all Google things and look for things that, that we want to find. Uh, I was just interviewing a Harvard marketing professor for my podcast. And he was talking about how, and I'm probably going to get the stat off a little bit, but it was between 70 and 80% of what's Googled is the first time that that combination of words have been Googled. Uh, and so... Google's constantly trying to figure out what is the best web page to send that person to. And so if you're creating new content that's around your ideal client, eventually they're going to start to land on some, some blog posts or some, some videos that you've created that really help, help that person to be able to create action. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. 
For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. And so we've built our audience. We're using our search engine optimization to the fullest. Where would you say is the next place to go? Yeah, I think I would say once you have somewhat of an audience, see if you can do a Skype call or a Zoom call with maybe 10 or 20 people that are your ideal audience members. And so ideally, by this point, people would have opted into an email list. Uh, They're getting some regular email correspondence from you that's building value. Uh, So say you want to open a dog grooming store, just to pick a random store. You want to have something that provides value. So you might have some videos you do of what, what's you know the average upkeep for a dog? What are things that you should do after you go to the beach with the dog? What are things that you should do after you go on a hike in the woods? You should look for ticks and all these other little things. So you're creating that content. And then ideally, you'd get people to opt into an email list. And so it might be, you know, I'm going to send you a weekly or a monthly email that's just going to help you continue to care for your dog. It's not going to be trying to promote my stuff. So then once you get some people on that list, to say, hey, I'd love to sit down uh, with 10 or 20 of you over Skype to just hear what it is that you wish that was offered in our community. If you are if you have a brick and mortar, say, dog grooming business, or maybe it's just that you're teaching people online uh, how to better care for their dogs. So then once you have those conversations, you can start to pick up on a number of different things. And some questions that are helpful to ask the ideal client when you have them face-to-face is, um, tell me a little bit about so if it's your dog tell me a little bit about your dog and what stressors are around uh, your dog or what questions do you have uh, what products do you wish were out there that right now aren't out there and what would you pay for those products if this imaginary amazing product was out there that at least gives you an idea if you interview 10 or 20 of your ideal clients and they're all saying you know what I wish I had I wish I had something that would you know remove ticks easier from my dog Okay, well, that might be something you want to look into if you wanted to start that kind of small business. Or you may, through that process, then say, I absolutely don't want to develop a product to get ticks off of a dog. And then you didn't waste all this time and money creating a product that no one wants to buy. Makes sense. So I know something that you are well known for, Joe, is taking an established practice and scaling it. So let's jump forward in time. We've got our business off the ground. Let's talk about scaling. Yeah. So when you're scaling a business, the things that'll get you to a six-figure business uh, are usually the exact opposite of what takes you past that. So to get to six figures, you're bootstrapping, you're keeping your costs down, you're wearing multiple hats. Really, to get to six figures, it just takes a lot of hard work. But after that, the biggest questions have to be the opposite. You have to start saying, how do I take hats off? And and there's a formula that that I found that's worked over and over with businesses that want to grow. And it's the acronym RISE, R-I-S-E. So the first R of that, the R of that is recognize. You want to recognize what's happening right now in your business. So if you're at six figures, uh, you've got X number of clients coming in. 
You just want to have a baseline of, of what's happening in your business. And next, you want to, the eye of that is increase. So you want to look at, well, what would a bigger scope look like? Is that serving more people? Is that serving fewer people at a higher price point? Is that offering a different product that's on the spectrum of services? Maybe right now you have a high-end product, you need a lower end. So something that really inspires you to go bigger with your scope. And then next, you want to look at the S of that is support. So you really want to look at who can surround you that can help you take hats off. Because as the business owner, as the person that has the grand vision for everything that's working or that could work, uh, you want to be able to have an idea and quickly pass that off to someone else so that the E of it is to expand. And to really, truly expand and scale, uh, you have to look at replacing yourself. And so what that looks like is, can you go away for a month and have your business not fall apart? So if you have a typical, say, plumbing business, can you go away for a month without things falling apart? And if not, then you aren't at that scaling phase yet. Um, If you can, and the money keeps coming in and it keeps growing, then you know that you've expanded and really gone through that whole rise process. I love it. And so once you're there, is this sort of a rinse and repeat? You, You just go through that cycle periodically to, as your business is getting larger and larger, just rise and rise again? Yeah, what I would add after that and before you kind of dive into this, and this is something that I I really love speaking about, is that you do want to slow down. Uh, Because oftentimes in the entrepreneurial world, we hear about hustle, we hear about, you know, running, or there's all sorts of words that, that people use around being aggressive towards your goals. But we know that our brains innovate when it's when they slow down. And so there was a study that the University of Illinois did um, where they studied what's called vigilance decrement. So vigilance meaning how well you pay attention, decrement meaning breaking down over time. So the first part of the study, what they did uh, is they had people come in, they were assigned a random four-digit number, say it was 5178. Anytime that random number came up on the computer screen, they had to hit a button. And there was other four-digit numbers that came up over this 50-minute period. So what they saw was they saw decrement in people's vigilance over that hour. Um, And so it went down. They didn't pay attention as well at the end as they did at the beginning. Uh, But a different group, what they did is at the one-third mark, they gave them a micro break. They gave them a one-minute break. And so at the two-thirds mark, they did it again. So they said something like, okay, go to the lobby. We put you on the wrong computer. Um, we'll have you come back in just a second. Or, hey, just this is tough work. Stand up, do some jumping jacks real quick, or read a magazine for a minute. They found there was no breakdown in their vigilance by having just these two one-minute breaks. Now, what we know is that this is something that has often been lost, even though it's been around forever. Winston Churchill, he had his non-negotiable afternoon naps. Uh, Steve Jobs, he would often do walking meetings in nature when he had his biggest meetings. Uh, Timothy Ferris, who just wrote the book Tribe of Mentors, found that over surveying, he surveyed over 200 different executives and meditation was the most common thing they all had in common. And so we can run, we can rise, we can go towards our goals, but we also need to disengage because this reactivation and then deactivation is the part that really triggers that innovation that nobody else can compete with. I love that. And I, I've seen studies that talk about that. And, and a lot of different personal development experts over the years have mentioned you know, that degradation of focused attention. And you often hear of the Pomodoro method. You know, mm-hmm. This sounds very similar to what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. The 20-minute tomato timer. Yep, that's exactly uh, yeah. right. Yep. Yeah. So, I mean, even as a kid, my parents, having a father as a psychologist has its pros and its cons. (laughs) But I mean, they would set timers for homework so that we'd stay focused and then we'd have a snack and not realizing that they really understood how much more you could get done in a short period of time if you do that. 
Uh, but then even just being able to fully disengage from your business. So often on the weekends, entrepreneurs are thinking, oh my gosh, I could do this. Or they're talking to their spouse about it and they're excited about it. It's not, it doesn't feel like work to them, but you do have to turn your brain off and just have that downtime too, so that you can have those sparks of innovation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Joe, I, I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to make sure we pay due attention to something else you're doing, which is really, really cool. And, and as you know, one of the focuses of this show is, is helping others and giving back. And you've been doing something really interesting with microloans. Talk to us about that because it's such a great story. Yeah. So in, let's see, it was 2000, uh, I went down to Haiti with my mom. Uh, she had gone there the year before and came back. I mean, my mom's the kind of person that when it was spring break, she'd say, let's just sit around the house. And my dad would say, no, we're going to go to Florida or do something. So she was a homebody. She loved being at home. And she, out of nowhere one time uh, in when I was in college, said, you know, I need to go to Haiti. And we were all like, what? So she came back a changed woman. And I thought, I want to see what, what happened to my mom down there. So I went down with her in 2000. Uh, and Haiti's you know, only about 200 miles from Southern Florida. And so they literally are back, our backyard neighbors. And they're the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. And as a 20-something-year-old, to see that in our backyard w- was just insane. Uh, I mean, the airplane that we took from Port-au-Prince to Port-au-Pay... It was an old Russian Soviet plane that had duct tape on the wings and the pilots opened their windows and just free range chickens everywhere. And, and to see the level of poverty that was there, but then to also see the level of happiness that was there uh, was shocking to me uh, because you know you see, you know, at that time I was on a college campus, you see all these people that have plenty of shirts to wear, plenty of water to drink, plenty of food, and they were really unhappy. And when I started to read Mohammed Yunus's book, uh, Banker to the Poor, uh, who he really is one of the founders of microfinance, I realized that so little money could change someone's life. So the average income, uh, depending on which stats you look at, of a Haitian at the time was around $100 a year. Um, now it's probably up to about $150 a year. And so what we did is we offered $100 loans to women uh, so that they could buy things in bulk and start small businesses. So they might buy a gigantic bag of rice. They would repackage it, sell it. Um, you'll be able to sell that that $100 bag of rice for $300 and then pay back the loan, p- be able to pay for their kids to go to school. They might buy you know, hair supplies. They might buy whatever they decided they wanted. And they were in small groups of five uh, that were accountable to each other and were accountable to kind of make sure everybody paid the loans. Uh, and so um, that's a program that that we had for years that really helped women. And in that that village called Jalaver, uh, we've seen a, a huge change in the amount of, especially girls that can go to school, uh, because girls often have to go and get water. They have to kind of help their moms. And after usually sixth to eighth grade, when it starts to cost more for kids to stay in school, the girls often are the first ones to be taken out of school. I think that's so amazing, and it's. It's so interesting because a lot of people aren't aware of microfinance. So how do people get involved with that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many great organizations. I think that in giving, to me, it's less important to say get involved with my organization. It's more important to say, find one that's a really good fit for you. So Kiva, K-I-V-A, is probably one of the best microfinance uh, programs out there. And so it's great because if you give $100, that money just keeps recycling through the community as the women give back. Uh, and so I would say 
uh, finding an organization that best fits your your values and your your areas because there's there's so many things whether it's refugees whether it's microfinance in Haiti or in a different country I really want people to just go find one that they can be involved in in over the long term uh, to really be able to just learn more about what you connect with absolutely love it Joe we're getting close to time here and. I want to close with the question that, as you know, I ask all of my guests who come on, which is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd love for somebody to walk away with after listening to our chat today? Yeah, it's it's something I heard on some random radio station when I was in college that stuck with me. And that's when you say no to one thing, you say yes to something else. And so we often choose uh, to do things because we feel obligated to do them, because someone invited us to a party we don't want to go to, because someone said, you should do this. And you say, oh, I should do that. Rather than say, you know what, I'm going to set some boundaries around what I want to get out of of my life. I want to spend more time with my kids. They don't have to be in five sports. So when you say no to one thing, you're saying yes to something else. So if you say no to uh, checking your email on Friday afternoon, you're saying yes to that time with your spouse or that time with your kids or you know, just straightening up the house so that it's nice for your weekend. Uh, and so I think setting more boundaries around what you choose to do gives you so much freedom and happiness. I love that. Joe, where can people find you? Yeah, Dr. Richard, the best way for people to connect with me is on practiceofthepractice.com. We have a podcast there. We're going to be passing 300 episodes in just a little bit here. And uh, we cover things business-wise, practice-wise, mental health-wise, better life-wise. So yeah, come on over to practiceofthepractice.com. Love it. And for those of you in the car at the gym, we'll have everything Joe Sanek at The Daily Helping show notes at thedailyhelping.com, as well as on our app available on iTunes and Android. Well, Joe, thanks so much for being on the show today. I loved our discussion. Thanks, Dr. Richard. And I want to thank each and every one of you who tuned in to listen to this episode today. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for somebody else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others. 